Thank you, Tim. I just love listening to the uh, to our little ones and hearing their voices and and singing and praising the Lord. And so grateful for for those who uh, lead them. Um, and then to to reflect on God's grace this morning as we continue in this series. You know, the truth is, I see some some guests among us, and we're so grateful to have you here. I I do want you to know if you're here to hear a pep talk or or a feel good message, this is not one of those. This is uh, instead uh, what we're going to talk about is if, if if you find yourself desperate this morning, if you're heart aches and you don't know how you can maybe go on without Jesus, maybe, maybe this is the place for you today. And that's what we've come to, to reflect on is God's amazing grace and his love for each and every one of us. So let me welcome you and ask you to turn with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 8. Luke chapter 8, we're going to begin with verse 22 and take two stories that, and put them together as I think obviously Luke intends but I want us to examine this. Just to give you a, a short update on where things are, I've been talking about windows now for a couple of weeks, and uh, unfortunately they have been delayed in their, their coming, and so that's kind of slowed everything else down. Although I was promised that tomorrow we will see those windows delivered. And of course, once those, those are able to be put in to the various places around here, then the uh, bricks can be put up, the, we can start doing some drywalling, we can start seeing some other uh, real uh, significant progress here. So so, so grateful and ready to, to see that happen on a good week like this. So thanks for your patience. You know, we've got, just to let you know, we've got a team really working on the renovation or the idea for this room right now, for the sanctuary. We're only a couple of months away from moving over into the FLC. When we do that, we'll have a, a week or two, maybe three, depending on how extensive this renovation is going to be, where we'll be moved over there and they'll be working in here. So be praying about that because some good decisions, important decisions, I think exciting decisions are being made as we speak. So uh, being, uh, be in prayer for, for that team as well. Would you stand with me as we uh, receive this word together? Luke chapter 8, beginning here with verse 22, and I'll read down through verse 39. It says, one day Jesus said to his disciples, let us go over to the other side of the lake. So they got into a boat and set out. As they sailed, he fell asleep. A squall came down on the lake so that the boat was being swamped and they were in great danger. The disciples went and woke him saying, Master, Master, we're going to drown. He got up and rebuked the wind and the raging waters. The storm subsided and all was calm. Where is your faith? He asked his disciples. In fear and amazement, they asked one another, Who is this? He commands even the winds and the water. And they obey him. They sailed to the region of the Gerasenes, which is across the lake from Galilee. When Jesus stepped ashore, he was met by a demon-possessed man from the town. For a long time, this man had not worn clothes or lived in a house, but had lived in the tombs. When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell at his feet, shouting at the top of his voice, "'What do you want with me, Jesus, son of the Most High God?' I beg you, don't torture me. For Jesus had commanded the impure spirit to come out of the man. Many times it had seized him, and though he was chained hand and foot and kept under guard, he had broken his chains and had been driven by the demon into solitary places. Jesus asked him, 
what is your name? Legion, he replied, because many demons had gone into him. And they begged Jesus repeatedly not to order them to go into the abyss. A large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside. The demons begged Jesus to let them go into the pigs, and he gave them permission. When the demons came out of the man, they went into the pigs, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and was drowned. When those tending the pigs saw what had happened, they ran off and reported this in the town and countryside. And the people went out to see what had happened. When they came to Jesus, they found the man from whom the demons had gone out, sitting at Jesus' feet, dressed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. Those who had seen it told the people how the demon-possessed man had been cured. Then all the people of the region of the Gerasenes asked Jesus to leave them because they were overcome with fear. So he got into the boat and left. The man from whom the demons had gone out begged to go with him, but Jesus sent him away saying, return home and tell much how God has done for you. So the man went away and told all over town how much Jesus had done for him. May God have his blessing to his word. Please be seated. A couple of weeks ago, we saw a woman break in and suddenly disrupt a dinner party simply to worship Jesus. And we determined that she loved him greatly because she had been forgiven a great debt. And we learned two truths. We learned we cannot be saved until we realize how we are utterly, desperately, hopelessly lost. And then the second truth was this. We learned that the measure of our love for Christ will be most defined by how much we measure our debt to Christ. And those are two very important truths that I hope you will continue to ponder. But as we are making our way through the Gospel of Luke, I want to settle here in chapter 8. And earlier in chapter 8, I would have you note that Luke is describing Jesus going from town to town, and there are crowds all around him. The crowds are growing as Jesus teaches and as he heals people, and everybody knows his name. But one day, while ministry is going so very well, Jesus suddenly, I think, surprises surprises his disciples when he says to them, let us go over to the other side of the lake. Now, we may not notice it at first, but that's an important phrase. It's a phrase we might gloss over, but the reality is when Jesus says we are going to the other side, it's kind of a technical term. He's not just talking about geography. No, the other side refers, yes, to the other side of the lake, but it also meant going to the region of the Gerasenes, or what was called the Decapolis. That's a Greek word for ten cities. And this was enemy territory. This area was filled with Gentiles, pagans. Today, this is what we would call the Golan Heights. So the other side meant that you would be dealing with Gentiles and pagan temples and the cults that, that, that existed and exalted uh, sexuality, spiritism, uh, uh, certain forms of violence. And so if you think about it, you, you would not find a herd of pigs in Israel. No, this is the other side. And so the Jews regarded the other side as the place where Satan lived. It it was dark. 
It was evil. It was oppressive. It was Michigan, basically, if you think about it. The other side of the lake. So, so to go to the other side meant you were going to the dark side. And so Jesus has just wrapped up another great day of ministry. Things are going so well. And suddenly he announces, let's go over to the other side. You get the picture. And don't you think that the disciples were a little bit concerned? Jesus, that's not our side. We, we don't deal with that side. It's almost like Jesus thinks that the other side is his side too. Like, like every side belongs to him. Let's go over to the other side. And, and so they do. They, they get in a boat. The disciples are not thrilled. And wouldn't you know it, a storm comes up, a really bad storm. But the disciples are not surprised. Why? Because you're not supposed to go over to the other side. They're scared to death. And as the waves are overtaking them, the boat is filling up. They think that this is it. This is what happens when you start being nonchalant about the other side. But you notice what Jesus is doing, right? He's sleeping. He doesn't seem to be too worried. God is not near as worried about this situation as you think he ought to be. And so they ask him, they wake him up, they ask him, Jesus, we're drowning here. Jesus gets up, and, and, and different uh, gospels have this story in different ways, but it almost seems like he's a bit grumpy when he uh, begins to talk, and, and he lashes out, and he says, hush, be still. And the storm suddenly is calm, and he looks at his disciples, and he says to them, where is your faith? And they look at each other, and then they ask this question, who is this man? So the crew makes landfall with Jesus. Now, by this point, they're on the other side. And if you've been reading Luke, this surprises you because one of the first things you notice is, is that nobody notices them. They've been drawing huge crowds, but there are no crowds here. They don't know Jesus. Oh, except for one person, right? In fact, the only person that seems interested in them is a demon-possessed lunatic who isn't wearing any clothes and has no home except for the tombs. But isn't it interesting that when it comes to Jesus, the disciples had just been asking, who is this man? But here comes this tortured loner, and he knows who he is. The demons know who he is. They say, Jesus, Son of the Most High, God. And he comes out racing, screaming at the top of his lungs. And I'm sure those disciples once again were thinking, we should not have come over to the other side. This is scary. We recently put up a security camera system in our church where if we have a break-in in our church, I get an alert on my phone, and I have a video system where I can see what is actually going on through, through, through the video. Well, a few, night, a few weeks ago, one night at about 4 a.m., I got an alert, and uh, I sleepily began to check my phone, and sure enough, someone was in the sanctuary. 
Well, despite the fact that I'm miles away, I'm, I'm, the adrenaline's running, I've got heebie-jeebies, my, my heart is beginning to race, and I, I'm, of course, wondering what in the world is going on. So I did the right thing. I called the police and reported the perpetrator. They said they would send out a car immediately, and it was probably best if I would start making my way over to the church. Well, well, honestly, I'm not too happy here. I'm in my PJs, or, and uh, I got to get dressed. I got to get up. I got to get out of bed, and I'm thinking, boy, I hope they get this guy. So I'm on my way, and I'm driving on 480 when I get another call from the police, and they say, we have someone. And I'm thinking, good, they got him. Well, uh, the officer says he, he says he knows you. <laughs> His name is Dale Drotter. Now, Dale, some of you know, is on our security team here at the church. And they say, Dale Drotter is here. Do you know him? Well, I would say what you said. I've never heard of him. I don't know. <laughs> this man knew who Jesus was. Now, there are some things I want you to see about this, this, this tortured man. Notice that he was immodestly clothed. I think that's significant here. He's, he's naked. You'll remember when Adam and Eve sinned, God in his mercy clothed them with a, as a sign of modesty and submission. It seems to me significant to note that when Satan gets control of people, he seeks to get them to remove their clothing in public as a sign of immodesty and defiance. I've got to tell you, I'm tempted to spend some more time on that point this morning, but, uh, and, and I had a couple of things happen just recently that I'd like to share about, but, but I think I'm going to save that for another day. But you'll notice he was immodestly clothed. The man was also socially despised. Verse 29 says he was driven to solitary places. He was utterly alone. He was a loner. The, the residents of the area had tried to... Uh, to, to help him in some way. They tried to restrain him, but they were terrified of him because when they would put him in chains, his maniacal strength would be able to break the fetters. Everyone was scared of him now, so they just avoided him altogether. He was utterly alone. Further, you'll notice he was emotionally disturbed. The scripture says, night and day among the tombs and in the hills, he would cry out and cut himself with stones. This is a man who was personally miserable. He didn't sleep very much. He cried out and cut himself. He mutilated his own body. He hated himself and could not stand to think of what he had become. When he was asked his name, he gave this pitiful reply. He said, my name is Legion. A legion was a a Roman army of about 6,000 men. The indication was he was just filled with demons. Now, how, we, how, how this happened, we, we don't really know. But we do know this. The demons say, we know you're going to cast us out, but don't throw us into the abyss. Now, again, that's an interesting term. It's not the same word that's often used for hell, in fact, it's only used three or four times in Scripture, and it means bottomless pit or the deep. 
Whatever it is, it is some undesirable place where the demons are restrained by God. But in verse 32, it reads, A large herd of pigs was there on the hillside. The demons begged Jesus to let them go into the pigs, and he gave them permission. When the demons came out of the man, they went into the pigs, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and was drowned. Somebody said that this might have been the first case of swine flu. I wish they hadn't said that. Maybe that wasn't a good thing. Or, or maybe this is a case of deviled ham. Uh, but uh, I don't know. That's not a good one either. There are a lot of those. You know, today it's funny. We have a, an interesting relationship with pigs. I've noticed how more and more often pigs are becoming pets. You've noticed this. But it would have, this, this passage would have read very different in Jesus' day. Pigs were inedible and abhorrent to the Jews. Now, to the Canaanites, they were sacred and even used as part of worship. If you read the, the book of 1 Maccabees, you'll see that the Jewish patriots were forced to eat the flesh of pigs. And when they resisted, they were slaughtered. While in Antiochus Epiphanes strode into Jerusalem in victory. He sacrificed a pig on the altar of the temple, disgracing the holy place, the temple itself, the city of Jerusalem, and all its people. So what I need you to see here is that Luke is setting up this dynamic of this intense spiritual battle. It's Jesus against the demons and pigs. But notice, it's not much of a battle at all, is it? The pigs and demons are handled decisively. This is a very clear statement about Jesus' authority. Jesus has authority over nature. We've seen that. But Jesus also has authority over these demons and pigs. Even on the other side, Jesus is in control. Now, the people's response here is kind of interesting. We're told that those tending the pigs ran off and reported it in the city and the countryside. And you can imagine, if, if, if you're a pig herder working for the guy that owned all the pigs and you come home and you've got no pigs, there's going to be a problem. You had 2,000 pigs, but now they're all gone. And so the boss says, where are my pigs? And your answer is, well, they got up and they all committed suicide. I mean, or something like that. It's kind of a, kind of a weird deal. You've got to come up with an answer. You've got to tell this story. So, so, the people, so the people come from town. And, and you might think, wow, they, they would be elated. But this man has obviously been transformed as they see him sitting at Jesus' feet. He's in his right mind. He's changed. But notice here, they're not excited. They're not elated. The Bible says what? They were afraid. They were afraid. Now, what are they afraid of? Well, Jesus had just destroyed a whole herd of pigs. Now, I think what is happening here is more than just sympathy for the pigs. Jesus is disrupting. Jesus is disturbing their livelihood. 
You see, when Jesus gets involved, it might cost you something. Who cares about the man who got cured? Money meant more than mercy. I wonder how many times when Jesus puts our pocketbook at risk, we ask him to leave. The idea that Jesus can bring a man redemption and life sounds all nice and everything up until that moment I realize it might cost me something for him to do that. Listen, my friends, one of the ways that you will genuinely know you have become a follower of Jesus is you rejoice more in his mercy and worry less about your money. But these people, they asked Jesus to leave. Jesus, we prefer our money over your mercy. So Jesus gets into the boat. He's going to leave. But you notice, of course, who wants to come with him. The man who has been possessed, he begs Jesus. He says, I've been living in this darkness my whole life, and it's destroyed me. I want to be with you, Lord. I I, I want to be one of your followers. Take me with you. And, of course, Jesus surprises us, doesn't he? He says, no. Up until now, all through Luke, Jesus has been saying, follow me, come be with me, be one of my disciples. But look at what Jesus says in verse 39. He says to this man, return home and tell him how much God has done for you. You stay here. You don't follow me. Go tell your story. I want you to imagine how this man must have felt as he see, as he watches that, that boat row away. And he's not in it. You know, what's he going to do? It might be a good question. What are we going to do? Have you ever thought about the fact that that Jesus keeps you here? I don't know about you, but there are moments in my life when I've said, Lord, I'm ready. Take me. I want to go to heaven. I'm tired of the pain. I'm tired of the difficulty. I'm tired of the sin all around me. I just want to be with you. And yet I'm still here, and you're still here. And so what is it that Jesus wants us to do? Now, now the temptation is, does he want me to pretend that nothing's happened? Does he just want me to go back to a middle-class lifestyle and go and work and build a nice nest egg and work for the American dream? No, what happens, what am I supposed to do when the amazing grace of Jesus Christ has touched my life and transformed me? What am I supposed to do? Well, look at what this man did. So the man went away and told all over town how much Jesus had done for him. He goes home and he begins to tell his story. He goes to his neighbors and his family and people in the market and says, I got got to tell you what Jesus did for me. Are you with me? Now, now there is an addendum to this story, and it's found in Mark chapter 6. In Mark, we're told that Jesus returns. He comes back over. He crosses over a little bit later to the other side. And Mark reports this. When they had crossed over, 
They landed at Gennesaret and anchored there. And as soon as they got out of the boat, people recognized Jesus. They ran throughout that whole region and carried the sick on mats to wherever they heard he was. And wherever he went, into villages, towns, or countryside, they placed the sick in the marketplaces. They begged him to let them touch even the edge of his cloak, and all who touched it were healed. Now, did you notice what happened? Do you notice what's different? The crowd comes running. The first time Jesus came, no one knew. But this time he comes and everybody is drawn to Jesus. And the only thing that's happened is this. What changed? Well, one guy told his story. One guy shared, this is what Jesus did in my life. And notice, friends, how it changed whole cities. It changed the whole other side. I want to share with you four I think, practical lessons that I at least have gained from this story. You may find others, but let me give you at least four here, very quickly. One of the things that this story reminds me, and and you need to hear this this morning, we are reminded that Satan's goal is to enslave you. Don't give him a foothold. Don't you dare give him a foothold. There's a lot about demon possession I don't understand, and, and I don't need to spend a lot of time there. But I do know this, that Satan is a cunning liar, and he will entice you with love and, 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 and liberation and fun and all the promises, but in the end, he will always seek to enslave you. He is out to kill, steal, and destroy. That's what he does. There's a tendency today in our society to think of the devil as kind of a comic figure or not to believe in him at all, that he's a figment of a wild imagination, a cartoon character perhaps, maybe a hideous monster clothed in red, carrying a pitchfork with a long tail and breathing out fire from his nostrils. But let me tell you, that's not the Bible's picture. The prince of darkness often disguises himself in a guise of light. And he entices and he captures. And he does it with sin. It might be alcohol or drugs, gambling, sex, pornography, shoplifting, gossiping, greed, lust for power. Whatever it is. The old country preacher used to say, sin will take you farther than you want to go keep you longer than you want to stay, and cost you more than you are willing to pay. Satan wants to do in you what he did to this demon-possessed man. He wants you to be lonely, miserable, and enslaved to all kinds of passions. Maybe there's somewhere here today. He says, that's me. 1 Peter 5.8 says, Be self-controlled and alert. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Now, the second lesson that it seems to be this passage reminds us of is we ought to uh, understand that this, this story reminds us that Jesus' grace can completely free you. You can seek after him. 
Maybe you heard about the man who volunteered to teach third grade Sunday school. He didn't really like kids, but he felt like he needed to contribute in some way, and so that's what he did. Every Sunday, it seemed to exasperate him just a little bit more. One boy in particular really drove him crazy, and he finally had had enough. He, he grabbed the little third grader and started shaking him and said, Son, I think the devil's got a hold of you. The boy looked at him and said, So do I. Now listen, Satan is powerful, but don't you forget, he's not all-powerful. The Bible says, submit yourself to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Now, you can't resist the devil on your own, however. He'll come right back. But if you submit yourself totally to God, unconditionally surrender to him, God will give you deliverance. You may have an addiction right now so entrenched you wonder if there's any hope for release. But I want you to know that this church is filled with people who have found themselves hopelessly lost. But with the power of Christ, they have overcome. 1 John 4.4 says, Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. And we live on that. We rely on that. We, that is our hope. There's another lesson. One of the things this reminds me is that some may resent your transformation, but you be tolerant of them. You notice here that there were people in that region who didn't rejoice over this man's deliverance at all. They resented it. And the truth is, when your life is transformed by God's grace, it may not make everybody happy. I know some folks in our congregation and your parents say, wasn't the religion we gave you good enough? Their their pride is wounded. Or maybe you have a mate who will say, are you going to start giving your money to the church? Do you expect to drag me to church with you every Sunday? Maybe, Maybe just your relationship with Christ threatens your mate's comfort zone. Your friends may say, I like the old you better. You were more fun to be with. Do you think you're better than me? Their conscience may be disturbed. But don't lash out. Don't be intimidated. Don't nag or whine or play the martyr. Show them that that Jesus Christ makes you a more caring son or daughter, that your relationship with Christ makes you a better, more loving spouse, a better worker, a more joy-filled friend. Jesus talked about living in such a way that others would see our good works, and as a result of seeing that good works, they might glorify too your Father who is in heaven. And the fourth lesson, it seems to me, is this. I think this is important. There are times when we may be called to go to the other side. But familiar territory may be the area where it's most fertile. So be sure to witness to God's grace there. I loved last week when we had Ruth Ann share some encouraging stories about what is happening in Eastern Europe where so many are in bondage to atheism. 
Louis and Grace and Briggs and Isabel just got back from Tanzania, and they are just bursting in wanting to share what they saw God do in Africa. And I want you to know those are great stories, and we need to hear those stories. But do you know what we need more than anything today in North Olmstead? We need some faithful Christians who right where we live will get bold and share their stories and say, I got to tell you, do you know what Jesus did for me? You know, maybe some of the most powerful, effective evangelistic words are, hey, could we do coffee? Would you like to come over for dinner? Listen, if we do that, I think revival will come to Friends Church. We won't be able to build a, big, a building big enough to contain because that's what happens when people get serious about the grace that they've come to know. I want to close this service this way. Some of you feel like you're a tortured loner. And maybe you need Christ's grace in your life today. I want you to know he's come to the other side. He left heaven to come to this earth. And he's seeking you right now. He died on the cross. He paid the penalty. We know this. He loves you. You just heard the kids a few minutes ago tell you about that love. If you need grace today, I want you to know that it, he's ready to give it. He's ready to pour it out. And for those of us who have experienced grace, our challenge is this. That we would share it with a neighbor. Share it with a family member. Share it with a friend. May God use us to change the other side. Let's pray. Father, I pause before you right now. Thankful, Lord, for the power of this message. Lord, demons are no match for your power. Sin is no match for your grace. There is no darkness, Lord, that is not able to be dispelled by the light of your love. And so, Father, if this morning we come into this place and we feel alone and we feel miserable, Lord, you're able to reach out to us. You're able to extend your, your hand of mercy and care and love. And I pray that, Lord, we would find that today to be real and powerful. And that, Lord, we would see deliverance in this place because you do care. Thank you, Lord, for coming over to the other side. Thank you, Lord, for stepping out of heaven and coming into this earth that we might know God's grace and mercy. I pray, Lord, for those of us who have claimed a relationship with Christ, who have allowed ourselves, Lord, to experience that grace through your divine love and mercy. Lord, I pray that we might be bold in sharing our faith, that, Lord, we would look for opportunities in our path to talk about what Jesus has done for us. Lord, we claim the other side, this side, for the glorious kingdom of heaven. We claim it for Jesus Christ. We know that this side belongs to you. 
We give you praise and thanksgiving. We love you and thank you, Lord. I pray for that person right now who is hurting. May they know that, Lord, even though it may seem like you're sleeping, that, Lord, you are powerful. You care. And the battle is nothing for you. I pray this all in your name. Son of the Most High God. Amen.